This is Relatively Cosmic. Hello and welcome to this episode of Relatively Cosmic. It is the second episode of my brand new podcast. My name is Dakota Hilliard and I am your host. On this episode, I have an interview with a very special friend of mine. Her name is Rhiannon. She is a PhD student at Montana State University studying solar physics. And we had an excellent conversation on where she started, what her old degree was, and what she is studying now. And of course, I conclude the episode with your consolation to know. It's a famous one, and I shout out one of my favorite astronomers of all time. Enjoy. Rhiannon, welcome to Relatively Cosmic. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm great. I'm doing great. Um, getting to talk about space with people always puts me in a great mood. So I'm looking forward to this. So you are currently at Montana State University. Uh, as a graduate student getting your PhD in physics um, and your focus is going to be on solar flares but before that you were previously at Millersville State University studying atmospheric science which intrigues me because that was my old major and I still love weather as much as I love space so how did you get started at Millersville University like did you always have a passion for weather did you was it, oh, hey, this seems fun, and it turned into a career? How did that, <laughs> how did that come about? Um, so my parents always told me that I loved watching, like, the Weather Channel. Uh, so that's, like, how most meteorologists seem to start is, like, everybody loves the Weather Channel or, like, somebody saw a tornado or something, like, spontaneous happened, and you're just hooked by the entire uh, meteorology experience. And I could say that's very similar to my experience. I mean, uh, I've always loved weather, but I've always liked earth science in general. So it's, it was kind of a natural progression for me to go into meteorology. But uh, sometime in high school was when I was like, you know what's really cool? The sun. And I got super obsessed like my senior year. So when I was looking at uh, universities to attend for undergrad, I didn't even think for a million years, I'd be going for a PhD. I just figured, oh, I'll do meteorology and maybe wiggle on some space weather, something like that. And uh, so Millersville was one of the only programs in the entire nation that had anything with solar involved. And uh, it still wasn't very much, but it was just enough uh, to get me where I am today. So uh, uh, Millersville won that, that battle. Um, so yeah, uh, and then halfway through university, I was like, you know what's cooler than meteorology? The sun. And there's not a lot cooler than meteorology, gotta say. Yeah, uh, true. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, yeah, so I started turning most of my focus towards, well, what can I do to become a solar physicist? And um, at the time, a couple of very wonderful human beings entered my life uh, who were involved in space and solar. And that just got me more and more involved. And uh, that's that's how I got here. <laughs> that's great. I I always love, especially when I'm talking to someone in the atmospheric science field, I love hearing their story 
on how they got into into pursuing atmospheric science like for me i was basically the same way um i always loved watching the weather channel growing up when the local on the eights came on and they had the smooth jazz playing i'm like this is a vibe like this is great (laughs) um so that's oh you always need the vibing weather music (laughs) yeah that's that's true so while you were at millersville you undertook a lot of very interesting research opportunities a lot of which i am highly jealous of (laughs) to say the least when i um when i was writing down my notes i'm like wow like this is (laughs) i was like the jealousy levels were rising to an extreme level (laughs) could you tell me more about some of the undergrad research that you did at millersville I know there's a lot. Um, I have uh, some. I, sure. <laughs> like I have some uh, that I highlighted uh, that we could talk about first. And if okay. there's anything else that you want to talk about sure. while you're there, we can uh, dive right in. So, perfect. So you were part of a research team uh, called CIRMAR. Could you explain that? Yes. Oh, so my freshman year. First semester, uh, I was sitting in our weather center and I knew this research project was going on. And it was this massive National Science Foundation funded research project. It was four universities and we're the only undergrads. We were leading it. And we had the uh, Wyoming King Air aircraft uh, there at Lancaster Airport. And I was just sitting doing some like freshman level stuff. Um, They didn't even have a starting meteorology yet at the time. And one of the, uh, God, I think juniors at the time. Yeah, he was a junior. uh, Came up to my friend and I and was like, hey, we need some help. Can we grab you guys? Like, are you doing anything? And we're like, well, no. And uh, it was the first time I ever put a uh, radar or a radio saw antenna together. and we were talking to this guy and we were just going on and on. And uh, he looks at the two of us and he goes, you want to fly in the airplane? <laughs> what kind of question is that? Of course we wanted to fly in the airplane. Um, and um, this person later became one of my like closest space weather friends. And um, yeah, he got us under the radar, <laughs> literally. Uh <laughs> And I managed to get a spot in this King aircraft with uh, two folks. I think one was a senior, one was a junior. And I was just this little freshman, no idea what was going on. Like, I didn't understand half of what we were studying. Um, And the day we went, it wasn't even one of, like, the research days. Like, they just wanted to use the aircraft, get us up there, see if we could see anything because it was cloudy and most of the... uh, research that was being done for this project was for non-cloudy days. So we went up and we studied cyclogenesis and at the time, or frontogenesis, sorry. And at the time, I had no idea what that meant. I just figured it meant the evolution of fronts. I was correct, but uh, I really didn't know what to expect. And uh, out of all of the things that happened that day, the weirdest thing that happened was because we were not doing a legitimate part of any of the research topics, we played rock, paper, scissors for who was going to be co-pilot. Guess who was co-pilot? <laughs> oh. It was me. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> that must so, have been incredible. Little freshman 
it was incredible. Um, I got to see my first ever year ever UT log P made by an aircraft. Um, I got to study the LIDAR systems. There was a LIDAR under the craft, above the craft. Um, and we just flew around for like three hours. I missed like four classes. I had no idea. I was so scared because like at the time, like as a freshman, you're like, oh my gosh, I missed classes. It's the end of the world. It was not. Um, yeah, it, it was an amazing experience. And it really just got me into research. Um, and that's something I don't think I would have had at a different university, honestly. Because like we're an undergrad-based research uh, and we're undergrad-based major. Like there were no grad students. Um, so we got the full brunt of all the research experiences. So yeah, that definitely got me into research for the first time was this incredible plane ride. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. When I saw that, I'm like, wow, I definitely have to talk about that. Cause flying airplanes into weather, that uh, that just seems like it would be so fun. For the longest time when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be in atmospheric science, but I really wanted to be part of the hurricane hunters. And so, yeah, anytime that people like <laughs> talk about them or they want to fly planes in the weather, I'm like, hey, I like that, too. Let's talk about that <laughs> some more. And, oh, yeah. I actually got to meet a couple of the hurricane hunters. Oh, really? How's that? Yeah. Uh, they're incredible people. They're, um, so I've met NOAA hurricane hunters and I've met actual like hurricane hunters, like not like actual, like the squadron. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're amazingly funny people. They're great. They have some of the coolest stories. I, I really can't say much more about them other than they're amazing. Yeah, I bet. Um, so you touched on yeah. it a little bit. Uh, during your story about working on the aircraft, uh, you were also a radio sound technician and working up in the aircraft in the weather, you drop the radio sounds down and it has a myriad of yeah. instruments. Oh, no. No. So the way that the sounding was taken for the aircraft, it was as it was going up, it would take the sounding. We didn't have any radio sounds with the aircraft, but there was a team launching radio sounds while we were flying. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So this the this project is massive, like massive, massive. It was actually the first time I launched a radio sound too. Was this project? Oh, um, that that's... really got me into everything. <laughs> I bet. Okay, so I'm glad, <laughs> glad I cleared that up because I was about to just go yep. <laughs> on, go on and on. So I'm glad you corrected me, so I didn't make any. <laughs> any yeah. more mistakes than I should have. Um, no, and... you're good. You're good. <laughs> Being a lead forecaster, we had like forecast groups for our campus weather service. And the lead forecaster position was like the head of the student forecasters. And then it was our like um, department forecaster. And he would like do everything uh, else. So he would like lead a forecast session and that kind of stuff. I did end up taking over part of that for my group because he left um, my senior year and I refused to let CWS die while he was gone. Um, and it was just, it, again, it was just my group. It wasn't even like a whole bunch of people. Um, but I helped, well, I guess I helped assign people to places. So I did kind of take over part of his job, but like, <laughs> not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay glad i um so it's not as cool i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Yeah. Okay. So, well, not off to a good start. And, um, yeah, making mistakes left and right. But that's what we're all about here. <laughs> it happens. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> I saw a weather service and I just uh, autocorrect was like, oh, yeah. National Weather Service. I'm like, shoot, that's nuts. But okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Campus weather service. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you um you are uh from the pennsylvania area and you went to millersville and now you are in the wonderful town of bozeman montana studying at montana state university and you're going to be studying solar physics and you want to be working with solar flares so how did you end up making that transition from um being all the way on the East coast in Pennsylvania and then coming all the way out to the Rocky mountains in Montana. <clears throat> well, um, it was a long journey. Actually, it was a uh, 2000 miles. It was, so it was like three days of just straight roads and a lot of flat, flat part of the country. Um, I got here from oh starting my sophomore year I really started throwing myself into solar and like trying to do stuff with solar and by the time I hit my senior year uh, I had figured out that I wanted to go to grad school and I, uh, I knew I faced a really big hurdle I'm a meteorologist trying to enter a physics world I'm an outlier I'm still an outlier in my department um, pretty much everybody uh, in my department is a physicist um, and I'm an atmospheric physicist but that's a very different concept because I'm studying essentially Latin when I was studying English. That's how I usually kind of like think about it. But like, there's a lot of similarities, but also it's still completely foreign. Um, so I started taking a lot of more physics classes in my undergrad. That was part of my minor. So I was doing that anyway. And, um, when COVID hit, it was a big detriment. I didn't get any research opportunities outside of my university um, because most of the places that I applied for shut down. Um, and I started the journey my junior year trying to figure out like how grad school works because like there's not a lot of info on that, surprisingly. Uh, and then by my end of my junior year, I started reaching out to universities who might take me. And that was a really long process because I had to find universities that not only did solar, but would take someone who isn't physics into a physics department. Mm -hmm. um, so I managed to find seven universities that fit those requirements. And I started reaching out to them because there's not a lot of solar programs. There's a lot of like space weather and there's a lot of like magnetospheric stuff and mm -hmm. ionospheric stuff and that's not what I wanted I wanted on sun and that was kind of difficult to find um so I started reaching out I got I got in touch with all seven universities in one way or another um two of them just never emailed me back um one wasn't a good experience and then um three were really good experience and I just applied for an additional one <clears throat> and halfway through the application process I started looking to see who was not taking GREs 
because it was ridiculous for me to try and take this standardized test and the physics version. So I started looking for universities who were accepting applicants who didn't take the GRE. Um, and Montana came up on Twitter of all places. And I was like, no way, they, they have a really good program, that kind of stuff. I reached out to their department because I didn't know who to reach out to. And I didn't hear anything. It was like radio science for like two weeks. And then their uh, dean at the time emailed me back and was like, hey, um, I saw your email in there. Here are a couple of folks who do solar. See if their research aligns with yours and like reach out because everybody wants to talk. They just don't know what you're interested in, right? And I said, okay. So I reached out to the person who's currently my advisor and we had two Zoom meetings um, and she's incredible and she studies flares. And at the time I wanted to study helioseismology, which is kind of like using the exterior of the sun to figure out the interior. There's maybe two programs in all the US who do that. Um, and that's not here, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, so uh, by the time applications and acceptances started coming out, I was called for an interview here. And um, at the time I had one acceptance, um, one like maybe, and then two rejections. So it was like really rough at the time. I got this interview and it was my advisor and another uh, gentleman who does balloons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh i had the interview and a week later i had my acceptance letter <laughs> oh nice <laughs> so it was like nice. fast <laughs> um <laughs> so i i can't i can't really be more grateful for how this all happened because uh getting those rejections was awful and a lot of folks are getting them right now and it hurts it hurts a lot um especially since like undergrad wasn't very difficult for me to get into. I mean, I had really good grades and I don't know, I had really good grades and <laughs> it was undergrad. I don't know. Uh, but grad school was a completely different animal. And I was just floored. They take someone on like me because I don't have a physics background, like traditional physics background. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, like I said, I can't really be more grateful. <laughs> that's, that's Plus, a, that's I live. A... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, that's, that's, uh, an incredible journey um, for uh, going from getting all those projections and maybes. And then finally, Hey, this one opportunity just presented itself and presto you're, you're a graduate student. So that's, <laughs> that's a great, that's, that's uh, a great story. Um, kind of shifting back um, on the same subject, but shifting back in time a little bit to your undergrad at um, Millersville, um, you were a solar event analyst and you, um, were part of the event that happened on September 6th of 2017. Um, could you, mm -hmm. uh, talk more about that? Sure. Uh, so one of the summers I was at Millersville during, I think my radar research project, um, my advice, my advisor at the time there came to me and was like, hey, you and a group of others are going to do this space weather data portal crash or like test drive. And um, I was like, oh, cool, I'll help out. I've done um, test drives with websites before. So I kind of knew what I was doing. And um, the woman who was connected to this project, um, she, I still work with her today. Um, she and I talked a lot and we ended up 
um, my whole group doing a, like, it was like building an event overview of different solar events. Um, and you can find them at Space Weather Portal uh, under the event history tab. Mm -hmm. um, so my job was to study the flare associated with that event. And another one of my friends in the group's job was to study the geomagnetic impact of that storm because that storm was the same time as Hurricane Irma. Um, mm -hmm. And so while we were studying the storm, we were also in a space weather class studying the storm <laughs> uh, and the impacts. So it was, it was really interesting to like, or no, it was at the same time. It was later in the semester, later in the year, sorry. Things get overlapped because it was like, I don't remember. It was so long ago, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, we essentially built our event out of what's on the Space Weather Data Portal and wrote about it. So it was one of my, like, oh, maybe my second or third experience writing scientifically. And it wasn't like a scientific paper. It was more of like a public information paper. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting. And that was one of the doors that opened for SciComm for me was talking about this storm and using data, but putting it at a level where anyone could understand it. And that was really unique. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I'm always a an ambassador, or I will always be an ambassador for science communication um, because oftentimes people, they'll either hear this one fact and they want to they talk about it and then they it's kind of like a game of telephone where sometimes they just misconstrue the facts a little bit. And so it's good to have people of all fields of science uh, do science communication because I mean, sometimes these people want to be interested in this stuff, but they don't know how to, they don't know how to read differential equations. They don't have, they don't know how to read the rocket equation. <laughs> and so they need <laughs> any people to kind of explain that to them. And, and some layman's terms and hopefully that would further inspire them uh to uh study those equations and study the material so we can have more scientists on board which is always a great yeah. thing <clears throat> so yeah. and it's it's so, definitely a gap in solar is science communication because it's just so hard to explain something like magnetohydrodynamics to uh <laughs> in, in layman terms it, it's mm -hmm. it's not easy but doing this now is starting to teach me how to explain complex physics to folks who don't do complex physics, which is most folks. <laughs> <laughs> what is the future looking like for your uh, career as a graduate student at Montana State? Is there any particular uh, let's say, is there, I know you said you're going to be working with solar flares, but is there anything in particular with solar flares that you want to uh, learn more about, work with, or maybe if you would like to be a part of like a, a solar mission that NASA or the European Space Agency or someone else wants to be a part of, like would any of those things be of interest to you? And yeah, just what's, what's next for you? Sure. Um, 
So right now, everything is very academic focused. So most of us are just fully, re fully focused on just getting our classes out of the way. Um, this summer, I'm hoping that I will be able to work with solar flare um, plasma condensation. So when flares go off, they emit x-rays. And that's what we, we re record back here. That's what knocks out a lot of um, radio communications on the first wave. Um, and if there's a geomagnetic storm, impacts happen after. Um, but there's an issue. We're trying to find why they're so strong. And be, because there's a fairly large controversy right now on if it's due to plasma condensation after the flare goes off, because you have those post-eruptal arcades and you've got a lot of plasma running around. So we're seeing if that has to do with condensation evaporation of plasma, or if it is the reconnection of the magnetic fields in which um, my department is working on to try and figure out, well, they're kind of leaning towards the plasma, but I'm not very involved in it, so I'm not entirely sure. Um, so I don't want to really speak for them because like I said, I'm really not involved just yet. Um, for the future, like, beyond, uh, I'd really like to be an advocate for more satellites to view the sun at least 360 um, on the plane, because we, we really don't. I mean, our best view is from, uh, I think it's the middle strip of the sun. That's like our best view. And with the new solar cycle coming, a lot of those spot developments are above our perfect viewing so they're not as easy to see they're not as well defined um so i'd really like to be able to study how they form and why mm -hmm. um because there's just so much happening and we're starting to finally be able to get um computers that can model this because it's so complex there's turbulent flow there's um magnetic fields there's electric fields there's so much happening <laughs> that it's it's too much for computers to really handle, mm -hmm. um, especially with our current programs. So I really like to be able to study why more than anything else of why do solar fires go off? What, what makes them tick, you know? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, you, you raise some good points, especially about having spacecraft observe the sun on 360 degrees of the plane. Um, one day when I was working, one of my jobs at the bookstore here on campus, I, I came up with um, uh, a spacecraft, each identical at four of the five Lagrange points. And just to have like that 360 degree stereoscopic view. And lo and behold, like a few hours later, one person on Twitter, they were like, oh, I have this idea to launch eight spacecraft to observe the sun at 360 degrees. I'm like, I'm glad like a lot of people want to do that because even though the sun or like stuff on the far side um, might not be interesting to us in the now, like it's interesting to see the evolution of sunspots and coronal holes as they make their way around the sun. And I <clears throat> find that interesting. And as you know, more than anyone else, I've become really obsessed with solar flares lately. And so I, <laughs> I had to uh, pull out that solar flare question um, because I, I just find them very fascinating and both like 
the classes of solar flares and just looking at the movies of the solar flares ripping off the sun. Those are just, that's art right there. That is, that's art. <laughs> oh yeah, very much so. And yeah. To, um, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, no go, please. <laughs> no, you had, you had a thought. I, I was about to conclude, but you had a thought. Oh, okay. Well, I was just going to say, we, we really need to have, uh, a lot of research on the solar stuff, especially since we're starting to introduce ornaments and we're looking at Mars. We don't have a lot of eyes on the sun and that's going to be a problem, especially as solar cycle 25, woo, I almost said 23, what am I thinking? <laughs> 25 ramps up. Uh, and that's that's a big concern for, um, um, especially for me, but I think in our solar community, we're, we're thinking about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's making uh, some of us anxious, especially me. I'm very anxious about um, sending folks up there with not, not being able to see anything, especially with like the meteorology background. Like we have really good, like we can see what's going on in the atmosphere, like see, but like, it's kind of weird where I'm living now. I don't have radar that's very good. So I don't actually know when the next storm's coming, where it's coming from really. Like I have a general idea and that's kind of where we are with solar right now. And that's a little scary because uh, sometimes it snow squalls here and I never saw it coming. <laughs> I hope that's not going to be the same in the future <laughs> in mm -hmm. space uh, where I can hide inside. But if your spacecraft gets hit by radiation and you're not prepared, who knows the consequences? Yeah, that that's a uh, good analogy that you um, put forth of having not good radar being a Bozeman, being in the middle of the mountains, mountain radar is crap, as we all know. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a, that, my mind was just kind of blown now uh, by that analogy. That's, that's a really good way of, of putting it. So uh, kudos to that. So to conclude here, um, a fun fact about you is you designed the show's logo you care to talk oh, more yeah. about that? <laughs> um, sure. Um, in my spare time when I have it, <laughs> I'm an artist. Uh, I do a lot of photography. I do music. I'm working on a color pencil sketch right now. Um, and it was, it was fun. I, I've done logos before, and it was so exciting to be able to do yours. I was delighted when you asked because uh, I haven't gotten to do any space-themed ones. So it was... Uh, or not like for someone else, like I've done them, but like I haven't mm -hmm. done them for someone. Um, so it was kind of fun to finally put put that to use, um, especially with how my art style is. That's great, yeah. And it's a wonderful logo, because um, I know thank I, you. I <laughs> yes, thank you for the logo, it's it's great. I, I, I know I wanted this to be a space podcast, but I also wanted to show that it'll branch out to other parts of science and so that's why I asked for the Thunderbolt because of my atmospheric science background, the dino skull, because I love dinosaurs. I mean, who doesn't? Um, and the, the camera, because I'm an astrophotographer or, and just a regular photographer. So oh, who knows? Well, we might have some photographers on here pretty soon. Um, but well, Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> So, Rhiannon, thank you so very much for joining us uh, on Relatively Cosmic. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And 
thank you for blowing my mind in more ways than one. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Now for this episode's Constellation to Know. One of the most recognizable and famous constellations in all of the world lies on a celestial equator. It's been in an ages-long fight since it was first recorded by our ancestors thousands of years ago. Along with its hunting dog and his dazzling belt, Orion is nothing short of just another constellation. Since being recorded in ancient times by the Babylonians, the Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, and even a few mentions in the Bible, Orion has captivated our imagination for millennia. In Greek mythology, Orion boasted that he could kill every animal on Earth. Gaia, in her rage, dispatched a scorpion to kill Orion. Have you ever noticed how Scorpius and Orion are in different parts of the sky? It's because those are age-old rivals right there. And as you see Orion in the sky now, he's still engaged in an age-long battle as he fends off Taurus the bull. With the storytelling out of the way, let us turn now to the features that really make us gawk in amazement at Orion. The main seven stars that make up Orion form an hourglass shape in the sky. With Betelgeuse, or Betelgeist, depending on how you like to say the name, would be in the northern hemisphere, be in your upper left-hand corner. And Rigel would be in the lower right-hand corner. So Betelgeuse is in the upper right, Rigel is in the lower... Um, no, excuse me. Betelgeuse would be in the upper left, while Rigel's in the lower right. And the three famous stars that make up Orion's belt are Alnitak, Alnilam, and Mintaka. And below Orion's famous belt is his sword, which contains M42, or as some people tend to call it, the Orion Nebula. A dazzling star-forming region filled with several bright young stars illuminating the gas and dust surrounding them. Now, as I mentioned before, Betelgeuse, or Betelgeuse, is one star everyone knows of in Orion due to its strikingly red appearance in the sky. That's because it is, in fact, a red supergiant. Now, what a red supergiant is is that is when the star is in the phase of its life where it's nearing its death. So it just basically expands and it blows up, uh, blows up in size, I should say, into this ginormous, even though that's not a word, a huge red, <laughs> a huge red star. And when it, go, when it eventually goes supernova, which who knows when it will, it's predicted to be so bright that it would outshine the moon in the daytime. Yes, you heard me correctly. You could see the supernova explosion of Betelgeuse in the daytime. That is just nuts. <laughs> That's nuts if you ask me. Like, I hope it explodes in my lifetime just so I could say, hey, like, I got to see a supernova explosion in the daytime because I don't think... Anyone that I know personally um, can uh, can attest to that. Um, moving back to Orion now, forgive me for my tangents. 
It is home to a meteor shower called the Orionids. So fun fact about meteor showers, they are named after their radiant point, which is the point that if you see a meteor shoot across the sky, if you trace it back to where it comes from, it originates in the constellation. So you have the Orionids, you have the Geminids, which which originate in a constellation of Gemini. You have the Taurids. Uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, you have the Orygids. And so Orion has the Orionids. And the parent body that causes the meteor shower is Halley's Comet. The famous Halley's Comet. Which, yes, it is pronounced Halley, not Haley. <laughs> and one last feature of Orion I would like to discuss is a very faint but fascinating feature that is called Barnard's Loop. Now, Barnard's Loop is named after one of my favorite astronomers of all time. Shout out to Edward Emerson Barnard. He was born in Nashville, Tennessee, which is my hometown. So he's one of my favorite ones, not just because of that fact, because of a lot of the photographs that he took while he was uh, working at different observatories around the country. But I just thought it was very fascinating that there was a very uh, famous astronomer that was born in my hometown. So I, I really much, uh, very much enjoy that. Um, he photographed it and published a description of it in 1894. Now, Barnard's Loop is an emission nebula, meaning the ionized gases that are within the nebula, the light that they emit uh, are in several different wavelengths. So it makes it kind of, it makes it more striking. And it takes up the entire left side of Orion if you're looking at it from the northern hemisphere, which is where I'm based. If you're looking at it through the summer, southern hemisphere, it'd be on his right side. And it encompasses the Horsehead Nebula, which I did not mention because if I dedicated a uh, a true segment on Orion, I could literally talk about Orion and all the objects it can uh, it contains, and that episode would be like four years long because it's, it's so interesting. But I like for these segments to be short and sweet, just so you can kind of. Take something home with you, as the old saying goes, at the end of the episode. Um, but it encompasses the Horsehead Nebula and the Orion Nebula as well. And it sits at a distance of either 518 or 1,434 light years away, depending on which estimate that you look at. Since there's different ways of estimating uh, how far this emission nebula is. And that is this episode's constellation to know, the ever-famous Orion. Thank you all so much for listening on this episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with my good friend, Rhiannon, and we will see you on the next one. <laughs>